0: Culture Map presents. What's Eric eating? From the Gal Media Studios in Houston, Texas. Here's Culture Map food editor Eric Sandler.
1: Welcome to What's Eric Eating? Culture Map's weekly look at all things Houston bars and restaurants. I'm your host, Culture Map food editor Eric Sandler. I have Tony Lerman from the El Topo Truck coming up in a little bit. But first, I am joined by not a new co-host, but a, a co-host who hasn't, who hasn't been on the show in a while, Michael Fulmer, Michael Fulmer easy for me to say, uh, one of the organizers of the Houston Barbecue Festival, among his many other talents. Michael, welcome back to the show. How are you?
0: I'm fantastic. Great holiday. Thanks for having me.
1: Yeah, thanks for being here. Uh, we have much to discuss, starting with big news from Bobby Hugel and Justin Yu. The dynamic duo behind Better Luck Tomorrow has announced that they're making it official. They have claimed the Southern Goods spot on 19th Street for a new restaurant. We have no details at all. Like It doesn't have a name. We don't have a concept, except we know that they'll be working with Terry Williams, who's uh, Bobby's kind of right-hand man running his various concepts. Drew Gimma, who used to be a baker at Common Bond and now works at Better Luck Tomorrow and uh, Mark Clayton, uh, a cook who's worked for Justin at both Oxhart and Theodore Rex uh Michael, I'm not hundred percent sure what to make of this, but I'm excited about it. What do you think
0: I think so too. I think Better luck tomorrow was kind of their you know floating project how would this work? How would a you know small bar small kitchen go in that area and you know, by all accounts, I think it's gone extremely well. Their bar service is great, the service is excellent, and the food is fantastic. Yeah, it, even it
1: operates primarily. Better Luck Tomorrow operates primarily as a bar, and but there are two different national publications that called it one of the best new restaurants in the country, even in spite of the fact that it's it's still a bar.
0: Oh, it's it is a bar. I mean, it's it's really small, but it's it's beyond merely elevated. You know, bar food. Um, you know, the pasta nights on Tuesday draw a great crowd, and then they just do simple things so well. The patty melt, which they call the party melt, I mean, it's unbelievable how good it is. You know, I just I look I, every time I get it. I thought was that just a one time experience? Like, no, it's really that good.
1: Right, and dining dining at Oxheart was definitely serious. Dining at Theodore Rex is maybe not quite as serious, but still like a pretty serious affair. It's nice to see Justin sort of show his sense of humor through his food at Better Luck Tomorrow in a way that
0: it doesn't at his restaurant. Oh, he's well documented. I mean, he loves all realms and kind of, you know, cuisines. And uh, yeah, Oxhart was definitely a high, you know, a high, high level, high tightrope type of cuisine. Uh, and Theodore Rex is in of that ilk, but yeah, he's, this has been done so well. And the Southern goods that the spot they're taking over is not a huge space either. We're talking like, what about 12, 13 tables, uh, an L shaped bar that has maybe 15, 16 seats and then outdoor eating. So once again, it's, so they're not taking on like a 120 seat restaurant. It's a little bit larger than what they've done. Uh, it looks like they have great staff around them. So by all accounts, uh, I think the uh, level of excitement is uh, well deserved.
1: Yeah, I and I will say that's the only thing that Bobby. I, I traded a couple text messages with Bobby. The only thing he said is that this is definitely. Whereas they think of BLT as a bar, they're thinking of this as a restaurant. So I think we can we can imagine like a more fully realized food menu. Maybe uh, I don't know. It'll just be it'll be interesting to see how it comes together. And of course, no timeline for when any of this is going to happen. And, and of course they also, Bobby also took the, uh, the etro space next to Anvil for a new bar that he hasn't released any details on yet either. So it's, it's shaping up to be a busy 2019 for, for Bobby Heugel If uh,
0: I, I think if they're equal else. to the task. Uh, yeah. And they've,
1: they've obviously done very well attracting talent around them. I mean, Drew's work at, at common bond pretty much speaks for itself. And then he's done, you know, maintaining standards at, at Better Luck Tomorrow has been, you know, he's, he's played a key role in that, too.
0: Yeah, and I think that whole area is, it's not saturated yet. I think there's plenty of room for a new place. And, you know, since the alcohol regulations have been relaxed in the Heights, uh, the referendum, it's just the whole area has just blown up, uh, and it just continues to expand. And if you go to the other side of the freeway of, uh, you know, of uh, 45, you know, you'll see that it's further expanding that way. So there's there's plenty of people that will come to that place. They don't need to necessarily become destination worthy. They can be a solid part of the neighborhood, I think.
1: Yeah, it's that area, you know, the Shepherd Corridor, starting with kind of Holman Draft Hall and then moving north. You've got Snooze and Sing and Superica and La Lucha and Connie Rosso and Kasushi, all kind of up and down the Shepherd Corridor and then, Nineteenth Street, Alice Blue, Harolds, Downhouse on Eighteenth Street, all the stuff coming to the Waterworks, Dotty, Common Bond, Verdeen, the vegan restaurant, uh, another location of uh, of the uh, ramen shop, of Ginya uh, Ramen. I mean, it's it's getting intense.
0: It is, and if you go further, a little further north, you know, beyond Six Ten to Oak Forest, there's not a whole lot there. You can see further expanding. You know, there's a few burger joints. There's the wine bar Plunk. Um, but it's all still south of there. So it's just spreading out and just attracting people. You look at a place like Cottonwood and and how well they've done. Uh, I think that whole area still has plenty of room to, to grow even more.
1: Oh yeah. Yeah. And I, and obviously whatever this new thing is called will be very much a part of that.
0: Yeah. And I think, you know, real estate values are, you know, it's always just so difficult, not just finding the right spot, but finding something that's affordable. And, you know, hopefully that there's still more spaces there that uh, will work for people. Right. All right.
1: Topic number two snooze coming to the Galleria sooner than expected. The Denver based all day brunch concept will open December 12th at the intersection of West and post Oak. I know people are, I, I know people it's kind of a love it or hate it proposition with snooze. Where are you on? Where are you on snooze?
0: I can't imagine really I don't understand why anyone would hate it other than the fact that they can't get in. Right. Too sweet and the line
1: suck, basically is the is the gripe.
0: Um I'm really impressed because it's it's something elevated beyond your IHOP and Denny's. You pay a little bit more, but the value is all there. Their commitment to sourcing through local and statewide, you know, uh you know, for whether they're whether it's it's food or, or drink. Uh, or uh, right. any other product is, you know, well documented. They've done a really good job. Their staff's well trained. Uh, it's the
1: it, most cheerful dining experience in Houston. <laughs> They're always happy. I don't even know why. I don't. I'm never that happy that early in the morning.
0: Uh, yeah, like I said, the only problem I've had. I live in the Montrose area. Is there's a sweet spot when you can get in there, you know, uh, and otherwise the parking is just a, a nightmare. Yeah, it's
1: before about well, that sweet spot is before what about eight a.m.
0: Uh, I find it's like the 9.30 to 10, right there, right before. I think there's uh, there's always a ton of people from the medical center, uh, center there. So you always see people in scrubs and whatnot. So I think, oh, that's right. Yeah, everybody that gets off shift. There's a shift change at the, at the yeah. hospitals when you get in there. But, uh, yeah, so I don't go very often just because I can't get a parking space. That's all.
1: Right. So I, I will say this is one of those very rare uh, soft openings where my mother said, I want to go to that. It's like, okay. So... Me and mom and the whole my, my sister and her whole family we're all gonna we're gonna be, you know, four adults and two preschoolers at, at snooze for one of their their soft opening dates. And and I think that just speaks to its appeal, right? You know, big fluffy pancakes with creative toppings, all those egg dishes. I mean, even the little stuff like the hash browns and the bacon, they get all of that
0: Good stuff. quality coffee. I mean just and little things like you want a hot sauce, well they can do a Tabasco, but they've got you know the yellow bird sauce. Uh, I just like everything they do, um, and they seem to have a good training regimen and a training crew because uh, the whole staff—you know—from the person you're you're greeted with to you know everyone who's cooking seems to be, you know, uh, seems to have their act together.
1: Yeah, and this one's close to close to the culture map office, which I think is gonna it's gonna make like that that like lunch Like, do I come to work a little late and get? Like a late, like a, like a late breakfast thing. Do we like, duck out at like one thirty right before they close and try to grab like a late lunch with less of a line? I just this is going to be a thing in in this office, even for my, my usually like, food skeptical uh, sports
0: I always thought it was. I was always very curious about why they got a liquor license, a mixed beverage license. Uh, I mean, why have I mean? How late are they open till what three o'clock? Yeah, two thirty. I think. Yeah, and then they're serving. Why did they get the liquor license in the first place? How much do they actually sell? But they sell a decent amount of
1: alcohol. I mean, they (laughs) sell. You know, if if you just look around on tables, especially on the on the weekends, every table has cocktails. Yeah, it really does. During the week, maybe less so. But again, those like, those those nurses and doctors getting off shift at seven o'clock. You know. They want to unwind before they go to bed.
0: Well, I mean, what is their competition? How many places are, you know, that sort of that level just above the sort of Denny's IHOP, you know, chain? Well, it
1: spawned some imitators, right? Like Lapeep picked up, you know, Lapeep added liquor to their gallery area location. The, the Toasted Yolk just opened it at Fountain View in Westheimer. I mean, there, there are these, uh, there are some imitators that are trying to hustle onto their corner to steal a, I, think there's still, still, a I think there's still I think
0: there's still good market for it. I know the ones in Austin are packed all the time.
1: Yeah, and I mean, at least the ones inside the loop, like i I wonder about that Katy location. you know if I if I want to have breakfast at eleven o'clock at, at the snooze in La Terra, is that crowded? I have a feeling it's probably not, but but by all accounts, town and country Heights, Montrose, those are all busy. Uh, the new one that just opened in Webster, I suspect that will be busy. Uh, And then they're coming to the woodlands at some point in 2019. And and I know that's going to be a huge hit
0: up there. Mm, Indeed.
1: All right. Topic number three. I think this is, this is mostly for me. You're not a drinker, but the harp closed. And, and it's one of the very first bars in Houston that I remember going to once I was legal. And it's in my neighborhood, like, like close enough to where I live that I can walk to it. Not that I, not that I did very often, but, you know, this kind of beloved neighborhood, divey Irish pub has come to an end and it will be renovated and remodeled and reconcepted still with like an Irish theme, but in time for, certainly in time
0: for St. Patrick's Day. Uh, Fulmer, do you have any memories of the harp? It, it, one of those places I popped into, I think on St. Patrick's Day, but didn't spend too much time on on a regular basis there at all.
1: Yeah. I was there recently, uh, within the last six weeks or so. And, you know, all the things that I kind of thought were charming about it, maybe 10 years ago have all kind of faded and now it just seems shabby and worn down. But, uh, so I think, I think this is a change that needed to happen. And I will be curious to see uh, Ted Baker who owns revelry on Richmond to control the space. Uh, Earlier did it, didn't it close briefly for a while too It closed for like a couple of weeks right after it changed hands they were going to kind of clean it up but but when I was in there it it occurred to me that it hadn't really been cleaned up that much it <laughs> needs it needs a more comprehensive set of renovations to be brought up to standard and it, you know if you think about all of the you know when it opened there just wasn't much on Westheimer or you know it's older than poison girl it's older than anvil and and certainly you know new arrivals like present company so you know give yeah, it i
0: guess it was there in the day of the Shepherd square oh yeah yeah just, i mean i it's just been a weird ghost town for like what 15 20 years easy yeah just, so yeah i mean
1: i've been legally drinking for 19 years good for you thank you and it was there before me and i think uh you know this new version of it will continue but uh, you know, you gotta you gotta keep up with the times. And well, stuff.
0: having a solid neighborhood bar, I mean, it's uh, every neighbor, you know, every place needs that, right?
1: Yeah, and so if this new version of the harp or whatever it's going to be called kind of keeps that, you know, neighborhood vibe, Irish pub atmosphere, uh, in a cleaned up environment with, uh, with like real cocktails. Yeah, I think ca- that'd like be a Keneally's
0: right is you know, which is of that ilk, you know, and not too far away on Shepherd. They've kept the place clean, the staff's good, you know, the pizza's serviceable. Uh, there are
1: people to, who are weirdly devoted to that
0: pizza. It is I used to, you know, I used to think it was fantastic and I think that was maybe more in my hard drinking days like cuz I had it again recently It was like, "Okay. Uh, yeah, people are very devoted to their pizza."
1: Right. All right. So, uh and then topic number 4, this one's tricky for you. Uh Killin' Steakhouse is opening in the woodlands. And I say that it's tricky for you because you're a Killen's employee. Mm. So I just want to note that this is happening, that, that Ronnie Killen is secured a $4.4 million loan to purchase, not lease the former Bob's chop house space on research forest drive. When I talked to him, he said that it's basically, it needs very little work and that he intends to be open in February in time for Valentine's day. My, I don't spend as much time in the woodlands as maybe I should, given how much activity is going on up there. Uh, there are a lot of steakhouses up there. Uh, but what's interesting to me is that when Tris opened, Austin Simmons told me that one of the motivations for reconcepting Hubble and Hudson Bistro into Tris was that, um, oh, the stupid Trulux. Trulux had come to the woodlands and kind of raised the game and been very popular with diners and so my thought is if if true is the gold standard in the woodlands and that's the target that that people are aiming for then killing steakhouse is just going to fucking crush when it gets up there
0: The, the thing i could say looking from you know having known ronnie and before i even worked for him is that i mean he sets a very high bar for himself if he you know in the middle of the Pearland before there was anything else out there. He wanted his steakhouse to be the best in the city out there. And he's so competitive just with himself. You know, he's never satisfied with, you know, how things are. He doesn't want to keep things pat. Uh, He wants to constantly improve. And I think his commitment to that, I think the group he has around him, uh, Ryan, Graham, uh, Jason, all these guys, I think they're also, they're all on board. And I think that level. Well, I think we'll see it with uh, the Tex Mex or the Mex Tex place when that opens. Uh, I just I know Ronnie to be that way, and uh, like I said, I think I think it's going to be fantastic. Yeah, no, I'm
1: I'm with you, and having uh, having spoken to Ronnie, and you know, I was I was thinking about this. uh, We were talking about this off air a, a few days ago. You know, I remember being introduced to Ronnie. At the Houston Chowhounds fried chicken throwdown in like two thousand nine. I remember and that. He wasn't competing, but he he had brought croissant bread pudding and it was like you know, I I was I was not professionally involved in the restaurant business in, in any capacity at that point. But it was there's this great there's this great steakhouse in Pearland. It's like it, first of all, where's Pearland? Right. And second of all, you're kidding me. But it's like just shut up and try the just shut up and try the bread pudding, a- and even like that dessert was enough to be like, okay, this is this is a restaurant I need to be aware of. And I and I eventually I made my way down to Killen's and to see Ronnie's rise from you know the best steakhouse you've never heard of to arguably one of the most prominent chefs in Houston has been something to behold. And and I just think. You know he's going to just come into the woodlands and raise the bar for every restaurant, including Tris. Like as much as as much as I like Tris, I think you know it's gonna it's gonna raise the bar for everybody.
0: Well, I think there's room for both of them. Oh, a hundred percent, and even more. Yeah, Uh, I mean there's there's some really ridiculous amount of money up there, and people will go out to eat, uh, and it doesn't seem to be a haven for. You know, high end or lots of creative genre-driven, you know, experimental cuisine. No,
1: they like they like their meat.
0: They like their meat and potatoes. Uh, and you know, this is a bullseye.
1: Yeah, long bone ribeyes and creamed corn. What's and,
0: and the days of just kind of having a good quality meat or saying you just have prime, uh, or even just say, oh, I've got dry aged. I mean, those. I mean, that's fifteen twenty years ago. Now, you know, you're seeing. All the places that want to stay relevant are offering, you know, wet age, dry age, domestic Wagyu, A5, you know, in some cases, you know, grass fed, uh, all these sourcing from different ranches. I mean, if you want to capture the steakhouse crowd and and stay ahead, I mean, I think that's what you've got to do. And we're seeing uh, several, several restaurateurs and chefs and restaurants embracing that.
1: Right. And, and I mean, to its, to his credit, Ronnie has always been. A part of that, they've had the, the Wagyu tasting flights, right? They they have the the Texas beef. They have the grass-fed beef. They have the wet age. They have the dry age. So, you know, the, you give diners choices and you train your staff in a way that you're able to both explain the difference in flavor and quality and also, you know, that you have a kitchen staff sharp enough to,
0: to cook and it And you've got a good source that can keep up with that and, and still provide quality. Right. Yeah, definitely.
1: All right. That does it for the news of the week. We'll be right back with our restaurants of the week. Stick around.
0: You're listening to What's Eric
2: Eating?
1: So, Michael, for our restaurants of the week, I've been thinking about this. You and I have been dining out kind of all fall, and we've hit most of the highlights together. We've been to Tris, we've been to Eunice. We went to La Lucha. We did Indianola separately, but we've we've been there. Um, and it's it's getting to be the end of the year, and it's getting to be sort of time to think about um, holiday dining and also, you know, what are the best new restaurants to open this year? And, you know, people are always, you know, one of the things I, I noticed this weekend as I was sort of out and about is everybody wants to know, all right, where should I go? So I'll put it to you what What of the newcomers have you been most impressed by? Where do you most want to go back
0: uh, for food in Yanola, um just about everything I had was really it was well thought out it was well executed uh the portions the pricing uh the value everything about the you know that specifically the food experience was really strong um when i think about you think about the dining experience Eunice. It's a stunningly beautiful restaurant.
1: It's a it's a stunningly beautiful restaurant, and and I find that food very compelling. You know that kind of slightly lighter take on Creole food. I mean i've been I've been describing it sort of as if if Brennan's and State of Grace had a baby, it would kind of be Eunice.
0: I think that's a fair assessment. Uh, I mean, I just I look at the fixtures. How the bar is set up, uh the bar staff, I know some of the bar staff, they've chosen some very good, very capable people. Um it's there's a certain romanticism to it, but it doesn't feel like if I went there with you know with you or with a bunch of guys, it would be a, that would be all right. But man, is it a good place to take a date?
1: Yeah, I I feel that way about it too. And I um but yeah, I mean I've been impressed by you know, impressed by my couple of experiences in Enola. I want to go back to Indianola. Um, I want to go back to UB Preserve. I, I think that's a restaurant that's that I've had a couple of good meals at, and I kind of want to check in on, you know, what Chris Shepard and Nick Wong are up to, and in terms of
0: I've had good experiences of, there, and the brunch was uh, particularly I enjoyed that. Yeah,
1: no, I think I think as as new brunch destinations go, I think that's been very solid.
0: Uh, the experience that kind of really surprised me in how good it was, and and this just goes to whatever expectations are, was how good Georgia James was. I mean, we were there opening week, you know, when I always kind of reserve any kind of real strong critique because they're still finding their footings and and everyone deserves, you know, a chance to kind of figure those out. But, man, it was fantastic.
1: Yeah, and again, we were just talking about kind of the things that Killens does that sets its apart. Uh, Georgia James is doing its version of those things, right? all texas beef mostly from 44 farms but some wagyu from marble ranch uh incorporating the the asian elements like the you know the fish sauce marinated crab claws and the uni panna cotta it, and and uh you know i i mean and that that zabaton that that that's wagyu chris, that's cut chris Shepard's signature right there yeah. i
0: mean it's it really speaks to him you know using different cuts uh You know, sustainability being a big issue, local issue, you know, locally sourcing being a big issue. Uh, I think he's doing a steakhouse, but it's not cookie cutter. You know, it's not red leather and brass everywhere with, you know, silver oak. uh, You know, Uh, it's, you know, Matt does his wine list the way he does it. It, It speaks to their identity, but they're doing a steakhouse their way. And it really was quite good.
1: Well, and also it was a comprehensive renovation of the underbelly space. It doesn't look or feel like underbelly, even though it's the same room.
0: Yeah, having the, moving the bar to the different area and creating a wine area for Matt and all his wine, uh, that that made a lot of sense.
1: Right. So what's your, so what's, so what's on your radar? What's your, I guess Killen's TMX is kind of the next one for me, I think. That's the, the next opening that I'm really, I'm very excited
0: to. about that. Uh, I love, As much as I love Tex-Mex, I love New Mexican food. I mean, I just got back from a trip from, you know, uh, Albuquerque and Santa Fe. And as much as I love Tex-Mex, I love the extra spice. I like, like a a salsa verde is not heavily laden with tomatillas so much as with green chilies. I like that extra. And I think bringing in, it sounds, we'll see. I mean, I think he's going to embrace the Tex part, but I think there's going to be a strong Mexican uh, uh, component to that. And there's a lot of room for that still. You don't have to necessarily be like Hugo's. I mean, Southwestern is one of those cuisines that became very highly ele- elevated in the 90s and then pretty much died. It's like a cuisine that just disappeared practically. Yes,
1: uh, the, the rabbit lot at at Annie are kind of the That only- was
0: like Annie was kind of like the last, you know, the last one outside of uh, Santa Fe to still be going. Um, but I still think there's a desire for some some kind of variation on that cuisine.
1: All right, uh, before you get out of here, I know uh, the Houston Barbecue Festival has a big event in Austin coming up. so
0: Oh yeah, we, we've done the Houston barbecue Throwdown last year, where that led to the Houston Austin barbecue throwdown. We brought in five places from Austin, uh, and just went it was just a great event, went really well. And so we decided we're going to continue with that and alternate uh, between Austin and Houston. So this year, uh, it's in Austin. It's on December 9th. Uh, from one to four p.m. at Friends and Allies Brewing, eighty dollars. You can get tickets at HOU BBQ. If you find yourself in the Austin area, the uh, second week in uh, December, that December ninth, uh, I highly recommend. It's going to be a great event.
1: Yeah, I mean the Houston events are always a great time. the 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 fun thing about these events is that you challenge the pitmasters. It's like don't just serve, you know, sliced brisket and pork spare ribs. Like really, come up with a creative dish where smoke is a com- where smoked meat is a component. Uh, and the Austin guys kind of cleaned the Houston guys' clock last year. Like
0: uh, it, yeah, we got Brotherton and Leroy and Lewis, uh, and they're going to be on their home turf. Uh, they do such a good job. I like when people tell me, "Why did you let Austin win?" And I'm like, "Hey, it's blind judging, and these are these are legitimate judges. These guys know what they're talking about." Uh, so we'll see. But the the Houston the Houston contingent they're fired up, so we'll see what they bring.
1: All right, Michael Fulmer, thank you very much for being here. Thanks for having me. All right, and I'll be right back with Tony Lerman.
0: You're listening to What's Eric Eating?
1: I'm joined this week by Tony Lerman, the chef owner of El Topo Truck. Every week I ask my guests uh, in the lightning round, what's your favorite place to get a taco? And El Topo is my favorite place to get a taco. Uh, So I wanted to have you on. You're also the winner of the Golden Cleaver. At the butcher's ball, you you upset Willow Villareal. You prevented the three-peat. So, with all that, Tony, welcome to the show. How are you? Thanks, Eric. I'm I'm doing well, man. Man, thanks for being here. I always like to kind of start at the beginning, and so uh, I I see you with your your six pointed star on your hat, <laughs> and so I have to ask you, how did a nice Jewish boy wind up? Uh, <laughs> wind up cooking for a living.
2: So, uh, there's a, uh, let me start with, with an anecdote. Um, there's a famous Patton Oswalt, uh, bit that he does where he talks about, um, if you really love your kids and you really want to have cool kids, uh, you have to be the most boring parents you possibly can. And so, what pat o'swald says in his thing is he says the the newest album i'm ever going to have when i have children is going to be phil collins no jacket required and he's going to rave about it and so that's kind of how my parents um either you know consciously or unconsciously <laughs> approached my culinary upbringing uh as a as a jewish mother um my mom cooked food <laughs> that was just I mean, you know, to use garlic in our in our house was was kind of a sin. I mean, to use <laughs> to use. See,
1: see, my father couldn't use enough garlic. It was, but but there were only three. There was tomato, and garlic, and that was kind of and onions. Those were those were his three key ingredients. Yeah.
2: Well, there was like this. There was a, this belief that you know not salting food was healthy, and we'd have the same mainstays all the time. Just this dish called. Put set which I've I've never actually looked up if that's a real Jewish dish um but it's one of these you know I,
1: I mean I've never heard of it so I'll, I'll just put that out there it's a
2: you know there's so many fever dreams from when I was a kid uh but that was one of them it was just like chicken and rice and sometimes there would be matzo balls in it sometimes there wouldn't um and so I grew up eating stuff like that and then at a very early age uh, I wanted to cook I just really needed to cook and so like between like eight and ten, I really started. I would make the spaghetti. I would make the French toast on French Toast Day. I would make the steaks on this tiny little grill, and uh everybody would would constantly be screaming at me not to make it weird. So are you like <laughs> are you like watching Food Network at this point? Or are you reading cookbooks? I mean, I'm Like, not, like, man, like what's I'm inspiring just, you to to. I, What's so, inspiring these dishes? So, you know, there wasn't much on back then. Yeah. I mean, there was like emerald, I, I guess. Um, what And I didn't watch like uh, Julia Child or anything. So I was just experimenting with whatever we had in the kitchen. And that's kind of where it started. I would make um, these weird dishes for my family where, you'd, you know, like we kind of call it freaking a dish where you have like a pasta sauce that's canned, but you do a whole bunch of stuff to it to make it chefy. Or, you know, like you're working with very like. Right. Well, t- let's
1: take this ragu yeah. and add a bunch of anchovy paste to it too. Exactly. Poor man's and,
2: and from my other chef friends, I know that that's kind of how they start too. Like that. that's usually their first uh, experience as a chef is some kind of elaboration on some like shitty food that you buy at the store and you, it's meant to like reheat and serve. Like, you know, there's like a special way to make Hamburger Helper. It's like better than the way everybody else makes hamburger Right. Helper.
1: This is how people wind up like, you know, cracking an egg into their ramen, right? Yeah, it's like the, the exactly. very basic like dorm cooking.
2: Yeah. So, I mean, from an early age, I had this, uh, I guess like seed of like need to experiment. And it started, it started with like spaghetti and doing weird stuff like that. And then I, I started, my first job was when I was 15 years old and I worked at a golf course as a cart guy. But I also did like, um they had like a banquet thing there and they did like catering so occasionally i'd like go in and do catering and i remember this one guy named tim who was just kind of like an old cocaine addict sorry tim if you're listening but that's what that's what tim was uh and him just like kind of crazy crazy like hurriedly like telling me like what all this stuff is i'm like oh what is this he's like oh that's balsamic vinaigrette and i was like i've never seen this before in my life like please explain this to me let me taste it and so that's kind of my baptism into it um you know and then as i got older i my very first cooking job was i worked at this barbecue spot in like north of san antonio it's now defunct it's the old mouse's barbecue but at this time it was called cobblestones and cobblestones um would be amazing if it were still open today now that people really give a shit.
1: Right. It missed the, it missed the barbecue moment. Yeah.
2: It really missed the barbecue moment. Had they hung on another like four years, it would have been awesome. But I worked there and I came in, there was no chef. There was, there were two owners and it's just like the craziest story. One of the guys had a construction business in Corpus Christi that made millions and millions of dollars. And the other guy was literally the, road manager for Guns N' Roses uh, was actually present when Axl Rose um, t- told the the Rio de Janeiro crowd that he's done and he walked off and they almost got killed. And so those two guys own this barbecue restaurant. I mean, that, you know, I've, heard, I've heard more improbable <laughs>
1: stories of people getting involved in the restaurant business. Yeah. At least they were well funded.
2: Yeah. These two guys opened this barbecue restaurant and I happened to cook there and I was one of the only ones. It wasn't you know addicted to some substance and had my head on my shoulders and so I I was the guy that made the briskets I was the guy that smoked all the stuff I made the sides and I kind of applied that same thing to everything that I did they had this like shitty little notebook with all these you know like this three ring binder of recipes that had been like craply printed out and like changed and stuff and I was like man you know I think we can make a better cream corn. And so I, I did. (laughs) And, you know, that's where I got started like cooking. And that's, I I think that's kind of what set me up as somebody that really likes to do everything. I like to, I like to smoke stuff. I like to make everything, whether it's pastry, it's bread, it's, you know, tortillas, barbacoa, Italian food. I don't care.
1: Right. So But you went to college. I mean, you have a... I did. So,
2: yeah. So, I was doing this in the background. Um, This is when... So, I started college in 2004, and I started this job in the later part of 2004, and then um, I dropped out of college because I was doing a lot of drugs myself, and then I did that for a year and then went back to... You did drugs for a year. Did drugs for a year, and then I went back to college, and then I uh, finished college in 2008. So um, I I came into college with 32 hours of credit (laughs) from AP tests. And so the year that I did drugs kind of was made up for... You evened out. (laughs) You stayed on schedule thanks to the merits of AP testing. I stayed on schedule. And so... Throughout college, I worked at at any number of restaurants, um, PF Chang's, like higher end Italian places, like shitty little places.
1: Right. So was the thought like I'm going to get my degree, and then I'm going to like get a real job? Or, or? yeah, absolutely.
2: Okay. <laughs> like absolutely. That was. Uh, and then so I, I started as a business major, and I took a lot of basics. I mean, I took several accounting classes. I took bunch of economics classes and stuff like that, and then I eventually um, ended up changing majors. Graduated with a degree in English and communications, and um, that was right about the time the housing market crashed, and I there were no jobs to be had. I I interviewed for a ton of jobs. The most promising of which was like some weird sales job where they actually didn't pay you, but you like made just all this commission and it was weird
1: sounds very boiler room
2: yeah it was it very much and so I was like I I think I'm gonna keep keep doing the restaurant thing and then uh I actually you know kind of roundabout way I got a job at um the Princeton Review and I was teaching uh I was teaching the SAT the GRE the LSAT the uh, MCAT and I met my wife in my in one of my GRE classes. She was one of my students. And they, don't, they don't frown on that at the Princeton Review? <laughs> they don't, no. There's not there's not rules about fraternizing? No, there, there used to be rules about the Princeton Review. One of the rules was that you had to say fuck in the first class to kind of like establish how cool it was. <laughs> right. Well, and don't
1: date the SAT students, right? Like, yeah. that's clearly off-limits. Yeah,
2: yeah, absolutely. Um, but my wife is actually older than me, and so... Yeah. I met her during doing that. And I guess during this whole time, I've always eaten at every restaurant that I could afford. Um, the very first crazy story, actually the very first cool restaurant I ever ate at, you know, like people are like, this one did it for me. This is where like, I realized food was really cool. The very first one I ate at was this place called Oloroso and it was in San Antonio. It was in King William. It was a, uh, it was a Wolfgang Puck, uh, graduate. Um, who opened this place? So like Spanish,
1: like tapas, or like it was. Uh, yeah, it was like
2: tapas, like weirdly European. And the dish that did it for me was uh, it was a hanger steak with this uh, this potato um, thing that it was like a it was a rectangular prism of potato that had the middle scooped out, replaced with truffled mashed potatoes. Had the top replaced and then seared off. Wow! And I looked at it. And so I'm, it's
1: like a potato cake, like a with mashed potato yeah. in the middle.
2: And I couldn't even, you know, that that's the best I can describe it. And what's crazy is, like, many years later, I'm friends with Ara Malekian, and I told Ara about that dish, and he goes, "Yeah, I invented that dish. Me and Wolfgang made that together." <laughs> yeah,
1: I I never I never am quite sure when Ara says things like that, like whether or not they're true, but yeah. we'll just. For the purposes know. of this podcast, we'll just we'll we'll allow that. To be <laughs>
2: um, but yeah, man. So i I then went to graduate school and I studied film, and uh, meaning film production, screenwriting, and kind of like all of that. I also did a lot of technology in graduate school with like Dreamweaver and the whole Adobe suite. And then I got headhunted while I was in graduate school to go work for a software company in the Midwest um, called Epic systems, which does hospital software. And it was more money than I'd ever seen, <laughs> like on a paycheck. And then I moved up to Madison and Madison is incredible. It is was a great place. And I lasted two years and I just absolutely hated my life. Like I hated working in corporate America. It's very cold there. Yeah. It's incredibly cold. Um, and it is a really cool town. And I didn't leave because of Madison, but you know, my wife and I moved back here.
1: Right. So how did you wind up in Houston? I guess. is Yeah. Is...
2: So my wife and I moved back here because my wife is from Houston. I'm from San Antonio and we just made a home here and I moved back and professionally I, I can, I did a little bit of consulting. Um, I did some graphic design in, in grad school. And so I, I did some graphic design there and I built some websites and then I was eventually hired as a uh, director of media and something else, director of media and something else for a company here. And it's kind of the same story. Lasted maybe two years and I just hated it, absolutely hated it. And then I started the food truck. <laughs>
1: oh, so you, didn't, so you never worked at a Houston restaurant. You just had, I, yeah. it had just been kind of dormant.
2: Exactly. So I never worked in a Houston restaurant, but I, um, I've always been ravenously cooking. Like I cooked dinner every single night, uh, when I wasn't actually working in a restaurant. Um, and then I've always been kind of like a compulsive cookbook buyer. And so I've got, you know, the one that kind of like resonated with me like in terms of like chef stories the most is Heston Blumenthal and he tells this like story about, you know, he's a self-trained cook, had a little bit of restaurant experience, and then he opened up the Fat Duck. And he has this bit in the Fat Duck cookbook where he talks about like him getting a one order from a table. And it's like, you know, the ticket's like pretty simple, but then he walks you through his whole pickup. And it is absolutely crazy. And he's like one of two people in the kitchen. And, you know, like just part of it was like, take out the ripping hot Dutch oven, splash in a little bit of like virgin almond oil, drop your calf's liver f- like straight from its buttermilk brine into it, replace it, and then like fire three more <laughs> things on the flat top. And that was one dish. And I was like, oh, my God, that that's kind of how me starting El Topo was, it was like trying to do something crazy. at Right. This.
1: So I order a barbacoa taco and then,
2: yeah. So we've gotten much better at it. Yeah, <laughs> We've gotten much better. Well, at let it. me just, so let me just yeah. ask
1: you, why did you, why did you decide to open a food truck instead of like going back to work at a restaurant?
2: Um, the profit margin and, and also, I, you know, I stopped working in the corporate sector because I didn't like working for people. Um, I always had my ideas about the way things should be done and, it was, you know, I, I don't know what it was. It was probably my wife telling me something like, you really don't listen to people well, so you should probably just start your own damn business. And so I did, and it's it's worked out well. Um, I yeah, guess. I mean, how
1: long have you been out? You've been out for what, a couple of years now?
2: Three years. So we started in uh, November of 15 and did a couple of, um, like, big catering gigs and then finally got our actual food permit uh, in February of 16 and then um, have always kind of tried to stay beneath the radar. Um, they're just like, you know, this, this interview can be so weird and long, man. This, uh, There's like this. We, we've got time. There's, there's this idea that I have about um, the way social media and, And people view businesses. And I think that there are, if you look for them, a ton of very well-received food trucks, food businesses, whatever, uh, businesses in general here in Houston. Um, And I mean, you know, across the world. But what I've noticed and what I really started the food truck to do was to build up a list of people that really liked my food and uh, got it and that's not everybody. And so I didn't try to go after 15,000, 30,000 followers because the you know the place I worked at before this had 125,000 followers and I just didn't want that. I wanted something that was small, that people that wasn't normal and that's what I started. <laughs> and
1: right cuz I mean at this point right so so for the the year or so that I've been a El Topo patron, you've had a pretty stable menu. Yeah. Right. Uh, you know, you do the barbacoa taco, you do uh, a kind of breakfast taco, you do that grilled cheese with the barbacoa. Um, so how did it evolve or
2: what did, what did you start out? Doing? Oh man. Yeah. I should have sent you over pictures. Um, there's still time. I'll, I'll take it. Yeah, it's not too late. Yeah. I'll, I'll send you a picture of my original menu. Uh, so, I started El Topo with another chef. Um, he's a really good friend. We were actually running food at PF Chang's together. His name is Mike Serva. He um, he's just like a constant inspiration and just a genius. And he's out in uh, Mendocino County now, working at a uh, at a place called Harbor House, which is um, fr- uh, the two guys. Well, two guys from Saison in San Francisco uh, ended up starting a little inn. And restaurant, and it's called Harbor House, and it's just incredible. And he works out there now, but um, he and I started El Topo together, and we had a couple of, I guess, principles um, that we wanted to apply to food trucking that don't don't really make sense.
1: You you started a taco truck with a mission statement.
2: <laughs> yeah, exactly. And so we wanted to we wanted to cook local food, and we wanted to cook. Based on the larder system. So, um, the larder system being all these kind of like long term preparations that you have either stocked away that can hold throughout seasons or can be taken out and just readily made into dishes,
1: uh, pickled, preserved, fermented, all that
2: kind of stuff like that, cured meats and stuff. And so think like bar tartine, we wanted to turn bar tartine into a Mexican taco truck. And we developed the menu based on that. We, you know, try to pull apart all the elements of what Mexican food is. So we started with masa and we said like, what, like, what is masa? What roads can we go down? How do we actually reach people based on like like when people eat a tortilla, what are they eating? What do they want to eat? Because there's a lot of restaurants in town that tamalize their own masa. And guess what? Nobody gives a shit because the tortillas aren't good. Because a lot of people have not had a nixtomalized tortilla, so they don't have that flavor memory. Or also, um, they're not, mixed. or 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 worse, they're used to eating yeah. shitty grocery store tortillas, or or also, you know, they're not nix tamalizing the right corn. They're like corn in Mexico is very very different from corn here, and you can't just take any field corn and turn it into into masa. You can't. You well, you can, but, but it, you shouldn't. But it doesn't work out well because each corn has a very delicate balance of fats and, and uh, starches. And that translates into a perfect tortilla. And so sometimes if you don't get that right, the tortillas really suck and they fall apart. And so we tried all this different stuff. And what we settled on was like an abolita style tortilla where we rehydrate maseca with a special blend of stuff that we use and that captures the flavor memory a lot better than doing anything else that we tried and so we tried to apply that same uh, calculus to everything we did i mean that's how we arrived at barbacoa that's how we arrived at um whenever we do it we'll do like al pastor that's how we do al pastor that's how we do um the big quesadilla on our menu (laughs) um Right. So, I mean, but, but clearly
1: it's working because eventually you got, yeah, you know, you got hooked in with urban harvest <laughs> and you, uh,
2: I mean it's growing. So yeah, that's kind of, that was kind of the weird thing for me is like there's, you know, food trucking is very much a business There there are a lot of aspects about it that my experience in restaurants and my experience building businesses did not prepare me for. Um, meaning that like, so I'm a big, uh, Douglas Adams fan. Um, hitchhiker's guide for those that don't know who that is, uh, is just like classic for all these like weird pieces of like these weird wormholes in the universe where stuff disappears and reappears at times that are not within your control, but kind of just work out and getting a food truck permit in Houston is a lot like that. Um, like well and then and
1: then once you get it right there's all these weird rules you have to follow it's not it's not like in austin where you can just park and leave it there and and you only have to move it once a year absolutely right you have to go to a commissary every day every day that you're open yeah you have to have a certificate that says you went there and you can't sell alcohol and and there's all these other and you're limited by the just the physical storage capacity of whatever that's right refrigeration you have which is why most of my favorite food trucks are now restaurants yeah, or they've gone away.
2: Yeah. And so, yeah, there's, there's a bunch of weird rules that are specific to Houston. Um, you know, you talked about the commissary one. That one, to me, kind of makes sense because a, a food truck does get kind of dirty and you do want to make sure they get cleaned every service. But also, you know, that means that you can't pipe it in to a gray water, which – I think some food trucks in Austin do. I can't be certain. Uh, but there's a lot of weird ones. Like you can't park within, you can't legally park within 60 feet of another food truck that's in operation. Um, right, without a fire marshal present. Yeah, without a fire marshal present. And then there's another one that says you can't park within 100 feet of seating um, right. of any kind. And Yeah, that's
1: that's the restaurant association. Like yeah. taking a weird, I, I've always thought that like politically... If you're a brick and mortar restaurant that's scared of a food truck, yeah, then you better look at your brick and
2: mortar operation. But I mean, like Eric, let's be fair. Like that, that's kind of Houston. There's a bunch of restaurants here that are that are open that probably shouldn't be open. Like they're cooking the exact same menu that they have for five, six, 10, 20 years, and they're sitting on real estate and right, like that, like somehow, but, but somehow serving this like.
1: It's always a little weird, right? Because there's, there's restaurants that are allowed to serve the same menu, right? Like, if, if the menu at Houston's ever changed, Yeah, be people would riot, for sure. Uh, but then there's, there's... I don't know if you're cooking, like... If you're cooking, like, Italian food, I, I guess that's okay. And then there's, like, you're a chef-driven restaurant, the menu never changes. It's like, ooh, that's maybe not okay. Yeah, I... If you're an if you're a upper-tier French restaurant, the menu never changes. That's probably not great.
2: Well, it's also... Houston is such a cool city because you can very uh, easily see like the hegemonic battle that's that's afoot. Like I I went to, um, well, what was it? Liberty Kitchen, the Liberty Kitchen over in, uh, I guess it's River Oaks. Yeah. Yeah. And they have like one of the classic like giant menus that's like, it's like a placemat and it's all menu and it's got just crazy stuff on it. Like, um, God, it's just like, there's so much crazy stuff and it's awesome and it's a beautiful restaurant, but there's like, that's clearly not, not something that is typical anymore. Like,
1: no, I, I mean, so that's that kind of push pull, right? I mean, right. If you go to the, the best, like the sort of the, the leading edge restaurants, right? Like, Theodore Rex has maybe 20 items on the menu. Riel sure. has 20 items on the menu. Nancy's Hustle, yeah, you know, about, about 20 as well. Right. I mean, but, you know, Lance Vegan at Liberty Kitchen has always been like I'm going to have a big menu. Yeah. Jonathan Levine at Jonathan's Rub is like, "Oh no, I'm going to have 20 appetizers." Like never mind entrees and salads and sides and all yeah. that stuff. So. Well, so there is that kind of dichotomy between trendy restaurants that want to focus on serving a really a really intimate slice of stuff. And then with the, with the expectation that it'll change pretty regularly and kind of more old school operators who are just like, no, we're going we're gonna to serve all of the things all of the time.
2: Yeah, I'm quite interested in that. I mean, especially like manning a food truck and kind of so to speak more to your question, we opened with a menu um, that was serving breakfast and lunch. And we had one physical spot that we could get somebody to allow us to park the food truck. Um, and so we parked it there. We ran off of our generator for eight and a half hours every single day. And we served breakfast and lunch and like, no one came, no one. Well, like one or two people ate our food. It was just, it was terrible. Um, but we make, we made really crazy stuff. Like I had this one thing on the menu that no one ever ordered. Like to this day, no one's ever ordered it. What was it? It was (laughs) called, uh, el huevo de Quetzalcoatl, which is like Quetzalcoatl's egg. Quetzalcoatl being the the bird, the lightning bird, okay, um, from sure. from Aztec, uh, yeah, mythology, and it was this um, like Mexican rice that we would throw down on the griddle. We would crack a sixty-one degree egg into the middle of the Mexican rice, and then cover it with Mexican rice, and then flip it in such a way that the whole thing was. Coated in Mexican rice, it was all crispy and amazing, and it had this like oozy egg in the middle.
1: So it's like a paella egg sandwich. I mean, well, it's
2: more like a Scotch egg, but okay. without without sauce without fl- yeah without frying it. It yeah. kind of like it was also a, a quite a culinary feat to accomplish, like on a hot griddle. And so I think that that made it pretty badass too. And then we dress it, you know, with a special sauce and send it out, and it was absolutely incredible. Maybe I'll do it again someday (laughs) right
1: so so let me just so let me just fast forward because we're not that i i didn't know in advance this was going to run long but of course we're running long so you've been on the truck for three years you've built this following for this like really carefully made you're a white guy making mexican food um in it but but in a way that's like authentic and, and respectful of the tradition sure uh So what's your goal? I mean, like, do you do you just want to be on the truck forever? Because you must, I I feel like every you've gotten a phone call from every food hall operator in town
2: for sure. Yeah, yeah. Um, So my my goal is an actual restaurant, and that's that is what's in the works currently. Um, Everything takes way too long in Houston because I'm still a I'm still a little guy. I don't I don't have a you know I don't have half a million dollars in my bank account. And so to move on properties here, you have to move very quickly. Um, luckily I've recently made some, some good friends and we're going to announce something soon. Um, but we're looking, we're looking at a couple of places. One that's, that's very, very promising. Uh, and my hope is to, to make something that's very, um, very intimate. Um, I want to, to be about 50, 60 seats. And I'd like to uh, do a full dinner service and then have it turn into a pretty rockin' bar um, where we're still cooking small bites. Um,
1: yeah. I mean, you've done a couple of pop-ups at Johnny's Goldbrick recently. Yeah. Is this kind of like with, with not tacos? Yeah, absolutely. Is, um, is that kind of the preview of what's next for you? You think?
2: I, I think you could say that it's been coming for a while and, you know, even though I am, uh, you know, like you said, a white, a white guy cooking tacos currently, um, I'm, I'm quite interested in that tension. Like that's something that I think about a lot. And, you know, I think that there's like this classic, there's this stereotype of like, you know, a a chef comes up with a restaurant they're like, Oh, I'm going to cook food from my childhood, the food that my mother and my grandmother cooked. And, I'm not trying to knock that. I just think it's said a lot and I'm not sure when it's a cop out and when it's not a cop out. And what I'm saying is like, I'm currently cooking food uh, and developing food that reflects where I am and where I grew up, meaning that Texas is weird and that it is an equal combination of Mexican cooking, Southern cooking, and prairie cooking or frontier cooking. And we exist like in this weird space. I mean, we used to be part Mexico and we also used to be like a haven for cowboys. We also have native uh, dishes in our town.
1: Right. And it, it wasn't that long ago. Yeah. Relatively speaking. I mean, Austin, See, to have Austin comes into the territory. What? In like 1820. I want to say something like
2: that. Yeah. It's not that long so ago. So it's
1: real in the, in the, by the standards of the grand sweep of history, Texas is an I as a as a place, it's really only existed for about two hundred years.
2: For sure. And so there's this, you know, this theory that like, oh well, you're a white guy in Texas, you should cook Tex Mex. And in my estimation, that's uh, Tex Mex is similar to um, someone of a Chinese background coming in and being handed this like weird white guy fifties menu and saying like, Oh, you cook General S chicken now. That's what you cook, Um, right? Uh, And so with with Tex-Mex and like where we are, I believe, you know, we should cook what's reflective. And a barbacoa grilled cheese, in my opinion, is the most Texas thing uh, that I can see. So to answer your question, yeah, it's going to be it will be um, it will be food of a higher level than usually what comes off of a taco truck, but it will be an equal combination of all those those pieces. Um, yeah, I, I mean the
1: the idea of who gets to cook what kind of food is is this like uh, yeah it's it's this like evolving conversation and and I don't pretend to have yeah. a firm grasp of all the the angles of it but I I think the key thing is is like not to present it as you're like you're not teaching people right like yeah. in, in Texas we For sure. we know what we know what barbacoa is yeah right I think it's it's more to say I appreciate i I've, I've spent my whole life appreciating this food and and I want to see what I can do with it
2: yeah, and maybe you know when when you and I have a TED talk we can cover that we can right. cover uh cur- cultural appropriation um I yeah I guess the only thing I'll say is I do think that there's a rash of places that are popping up like hipster places are have become like synonymous with like Kind of badly cooked, really expensive, but responsibly sourced food, and I hate that um, because you don't want to name names. Do you? Well, I, I don't. I mean, dude, dude, I can't, we we'll name some names, but um, well, I, the, and
1: and there's also like really kind of junky fusion taco concept. Not for sure. Not fusion taco the <laughs> restaurant, but there are yeah. There's really I mean, yeah. Right, there's really there's, shitty. You know, taco. if you're wrapping if you're wrapping chicken fingers covered in queso around a a crappy you know, three-day-old tortilla, Yeah, it's profitable, but it's not, it's not interesting.
2: Yeah. What I really mean to say is like, you know, Tom Colicchio, when he started Craft started it with the intention of cooking dishes the way they should be cooked. And first and foremost, I believe that my responsibility as a chef and as a purveyor of any kind of food is to cook the food appropriately. And what is very sad to me is that a lot of restaurants that I go to can't accomplish that they can't salt something appropriately. They can't cook a steak to temperature. They can't, you know, uh, cook chicken appropriately. And my, my first goal is to, to cook the food appropriately. And then to also, you know, I'm not pretending that every single person, especially in Houston, where we are the home of the good old boy, it is not, I'm not going to change a lot of minds like people are not going to come to me and say, Tony, tell me the story of Texas through your food. I think people are going to come in and say, like, holy shit, you know, chicken and uh, spoon bread, uh, corn spoon bread is a delicious combination. Um, I'm going to have that with my really badass old fashioned and we're going to have a great time. Uh, I think that that is going to be um, something that can reach people. And I guess that's all I have to say about
1: that. <laughs> all right. So that's twenty nineteen? Twenty
2: nineteen, yeah. We're
1: inside inside the loop for my own personal convenience?
2: Inside the loop. All
1: right. Um I I feel like I well, I know just from talking to you off air for many times, we could keep going on, but, but I also <laughs> know that, you know, when this thing runs much more than an hour, people start to I get I get angry emails. So yeah. Let me uh, let me wrap this up. Let me let's 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 do the lightning round and then we'll, we'll wrap this up. Let's do it. Um, Tony Lerman, what's your favorite ingredient?
2: Uh, I go I go through stages, Eric. Um, right now, I really like vinegar.
1: All right. It's the first band you ever saw in concert.
2: <laughs> um, Dashboard Confessional.
1: <laughs> That's sad. Just gonna, I'm just going to say that. I usually validate people's choices, but that. that yeah. right. What is your fast food guilty pleasure that comes from a restaurant
2: with a drive through? Oh man, does Shake Shack count? It, they don't have drive-throughs, but I'll allow it. Uh, yeah, the Shack Burger, man, right. a great. Um,
1: do you have a favorite Houston sports figure, past or present? You have a favorite San Antonio sports
2: figure? Well, I mean, no, man, I, I love Jeff Bagwell. Oh. Um That's a great answer.
1: That 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 totally um that makes up for Dashboard Confessional.
2: Yeah, I play well, I played a lot of baseball as a kid, and Jeff Bagwell was in that heyday right there. All right.
1: And then other than your truck, where's your favorite place to get a taco? Oh
2: man. Um Let me see. So, uh, sadly, I don't frequent a lot of taco places in Houston. I've just had my heart broken so many times. Uh, there's a place, though. Is there a place you go when you go home? There's a place that I go when I go home. It's called uh, Taqueria Data Point. <laughs> it's on Data Point And they exist as a, uh, at, I guess, uh, like a parasite on the like fork. Nightclubs that are there, and they're usually only open for like ten to two, but they always get a plus hundreds yeah. on all of their health inspection, which I am really proud of.
1: um All right, give us the website and the Instagram
2: and all that. Uh, it's Topo Truck for everything. T O P O Truck. Awesome, and Tony. Thanks for doing this. Thanks, Eric.
1: All right, and you can follow me on Twitter at East Sandler on Instagram at Eric Sandler. Keep it locked at CultureMap.com for all the latest Houston bar and restaurant news. Thanks so much for listening. I'll be back in two.